listening to 95.7 FM, KDRT LP, Davis, California. And the Garden Song means it's time for the Davis Garden Show. This is Don Shore. And this is Lois Richter on a bright, um, gloomy, um, pretty bright. Uh, overcast it's day. Bright and, bright and gray. Bright and gray. Not actually raining at this moment. It did rain yesterday. Not much, but enough to be wet and drippy for much of the day. They called that showers. And we've had several inches of rain so far. Lois is pulling up the weather so we can tell you more in more detail what's going on. Mm-hmm. Night temperature is nowhere near freezing. Uh, daytime temperatures mostly in the 50s, maybe 60. Let me let me know when you get that up there. What I can't. Say? I'm sorry. Okay, that's fine. Well, it's been. It, not, I remember it from this morning. Not cold and not uh, not and not anywhere close to frost. And it's going to be gloomy. Yep. A, a few sprinkles maybe, and then rain. sunny on Sunday. Is that right? Yeah. What's the temperature? Mostly sunny on Sunday. Let's say 60. Yeah. Let's just guess. Okay. Uh, 54 actually. 56 rather. Okay. Well. I, I'm doing a. a I'm outside in a booth on Sunday, and so okay. we've been looking at that very closely. <laughs> All right, so you might want to pull up the Arboretum and see if there's any events there that we can talk about. We do want to mention that the fall fundraiser was successful thanks to listeners like you. You can still donate. If you didn't get a chance to donate during our fall fundraiser, you can go to kdrt.org and look for the Donate button. A lot of different ways you can give contributions to KDRT and Davis Media Access. It says here there's still some fall fundraiser premium gifts available, so check that out on the website. Website. And we do thank all of you who donated during the fundraiser and at other times of year. You can even take a check, write one of those things on paper, put it in an envelope, <laughs> stick a, a stamp on it, and mail it to us. We'll tell you about that a little bit later in the program. As far as the Arboretum goes, um, every other week there is a, a music <laughs> thing on Friday. And then on January 25th, there's going to be a birding thing with me. And that will be a Saturday morning at 10.30. And January that's the slideshow. Sh- uh, slide and then on the 26th at I'll 10.30 is a... I'll just look in this brand new calendar here that the Redwood Bar Nursery has. Let's see. January 25th is a... Saturday, Saturday. There you and go. the 26th is a Sunday, and I'm doing an inside bird talk and an outside bird talk. So our calendar has arrived, and um, I'd mention this on the air only because it will be shortly uploaded to our business website in such a way that you can go there and download it. You can also go, you know, to a certain store in town and buy it, but you can, yes, it is page by page. It will be there. And, okay, this is a project for children with guidance from one parent perhaps for someone else in the family. You have my permission. I'm the copyright holder. You have my permission to download all 12 months. Go get some nice bright copy paper. Don't just use the -the run-of-the-mill copy paper. Go to the store and get some. You you may not know that paper comes in different brightnesses. Get the brightest one you can. Pretty heavy duty would be good. Better make sure the color printer cartridge is fairly new in the printer. Maybe go to a copy store for this. Print them out. (laughs) Go get some heavy-duty ribbon 
have someone help you, you know, collate all the pages, get them all together, lined up, have someone else fold the ribbon over the top on one edge, staple it in three places with a good heavy, sturdy staple. Here's the fun part. Try to find one of those single hole punch devices that people Mm. use. Get the exact middle of that thing, make a hole in it, and you can give that to someone for Christmas. Now, normally, printing something from a website like that would be a violation of copyright. Mm -hmm. I own the copyright. I hereby grant you permission to do this. You can give this lovely calendar to anyone in your family. Gives them things to do every month of the year, and it will be available um, by the time this podcast hits in about two days from this live broadcast at redwoodbarn.com, you'll see the folder there. So you can go help yourself to it. You can do it if you're grown up too. But this is just a suggestion for some, you know, 12-year-olds out there. And okay. what is the date today, Doug? I don't know. Let me look at the calendar. Oh, this is next year's calendar. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. December 12th. Thank you. December 12th, 2019. <laughs> so, um, and we're having fairly typical December weather, except that we are definitely ahead on rainfall at this point and a little bit more off and on in the, on the horizon. I should mention Tree Davis. Let's see, is this still relevant? They're looking for volunteers. December 14th. Yes, they are. Today's the 12th. So on the 14th, Tree Davis, which I'm now on the board, so we're going to be announcing these things (laughs) periodically. Uh, Don't miss out on the last tree planting event of the season. Hope to see you there. December 14th. 9 a.m. to 12 p.m., that is 9 a.m. to noon, you'll meet at the Davis Veterans Memorial, which is at 203 East 14th Street. You know where the high school is, the library? Same street. And, but, you know, a little further to the east. Look at the Davis Veterans Memorial, 9 a.m. Get there a little early. That would be helpful because they want to go out and take some trees and plant them. This is their last tree planting event of 2019. They will start up again with the Community Canopy Program, getting trees out to tree-needy tree places in Davis. And they can, they can use as many healthy people that can plant trees as possible because they've got a lot to get done. The soil's kind of heavy because it's kind of wet, so they'll need some help. You can sign up to volunteer. You can go to treedavis.org and look for the volunteer button. You can email info at treedavis.org. If you use a rotary dial telephone, you can call 530-758-7337. They'll meet at the Davis Veterans Memorial, divide up into groups, and head out into the community to plant trees for to help augment the city forest. Okay. And then the last announcement, usually we do something about one of the shows. Well, today I want to I want to announce two shows. Okay. One is immediately after we're done here, so at 1 o'clock, That's Life's Gonna Be On, and I'm going to play Christmas music. I got a whole slew of Christmas <laughs> CDs from the garage sale okay. that we had here, and I snagged them, and I'm going to play Christmas music. And then... Beth Post has laryngitis, poor oh. dear. She should be fine tomorrow. But uh, she's not going to be able to do her show. So Namele o Hawaii from 3 o'clock to 5 o'clock mm-hmm. is hosted by Lois. You're going to do it. Oh, I've okay. got all this Hawaiian music, and so I'm just going to play music. It's okay. going to be wonderful. So 1 to 2, that's life. Mm-hmm. Christmas, what's 2 to 3? Um, st- uh, um, Steve, what's his last name? <laughs> Put you on the spot, didn't I it? don't remember. <laughs> anyway, I'm sorry. A great show anyway. from 2 to 3, which we'll look up shortly. And then from <laughs> 3 to 5, Hawaiian music. Yes. Yeah. All right. Uh, here's a bunch of things that we've got here. I'm going to hand you those, which are the so the quick questions at the top there that we can go through right. first. And then we'll get to a much longer and really interesting question from a customer. What, what, customer what are we going to do? What's our main discussion going to uh, be? For next show. Start, oh, uh, small trees for um, Southern California. Oh. 
Okay. So what's the difference between daffodils and narcissus? Okay, we get this question every year because we have things labeled daffodils and then we have the name narcissus on all of those things and other things as well. Narcissus so, is the genera, isn't it? Yes, yes. The narcissus is the genus, genus of all of the daffodils and the cluster blooming paper whites and a bunch of other things that are all fairly similar. My mother always referred to big yellow trumpet flowered members of the genus Narcissus as daffodils. Mm -hmm. That's That's what what my mom did too. If someone walks in and asks me for a daffodil, I figure they probably mean that. Mm -hmm. They mean one of the trumpet-shaped type. There are a dozen or more actual categories or classes of daffodils. They've been breeding daffodils for four to five hundred years. They were actually breeding them before Linnaeus invented the Latin binomial concept. So many of the plants for whom that was the case, roses, daffodils, tulips, those three in particular, which were heavily bred by the Dutch and others way back into the 1500s. There were all these hybrids already before Latin binomials were invented and before taxonomy became an actual thing. And figuring out the taxonomy of heavily hybridized species and genera of plants is incredibly complicated. Uh, So they generally came up with classifications based on either flower form or usage or something like that. And so the daffodils, like the tulips, and you can go to my website if you're actually interested in this kind of thing. Just look for any, click, do a search on my website, redwoodbarn.com, for bulbs. And I have a whole, I have all the classifications of the tulips and the daffodils there if you're interested. Trumpet daffodils, trumpet-shaped flowers in the genus Narcissus are usually called daffodils, except Mm -hmm. in England where they call them jonquils. Mm -hmm. I learned this long ago from a customer with an English accent who came in looking for jonquils and was a little perplexed when I showed her Narcissus jonquilla, which is a jonquil, but that wasn't what she meant at all. She meant daffodils. The term Narcissus is usually used in common usage for the cluster-blooming, very fragrant, small-flowered members of the genus Narcissus. It's commonly, those are called Narcissus, the best known of that group, are the paper whites. But they're certainly not the only one. There's lots and lots and lots of other Narcissus that are commonly sold as if as as with the common name Narcissus. What's the Latin name for the Narcissus paper whites? They are the Tazetta hybrids. and Nar- Narcissus Tazetta? Tazetta hybrids is what they're called, and they're complex hybrids, and there's a whole bunch of them. Everybody knows the paper whites, but there's also the Chinese sacred lily. There's Soleil Dior, which is a golden version. There's probably eight or ten strains of Tazetta hybrids that have been widely planted in California for over 100 years mm-hmm. and have naturalized very freely in some areas, particularly the Bay Area, Southern California. So you may see something that looks like a paper white, smells a lot like a paper white. That's super fragrant blossoms that are often more fragrant than most people like indoors. Um, just blooming away sometimes as early as October, November. Mm-hmm. I have a bulb grower down in uh, the Santa Cruz area who specializes in Tazetta hybrids, and he's got 30, 40, 50 different kinds mm-hmm. blooming as early as October and as late as April. So in that group of what are roughly called paper whites by most people, technically Tazetta hybrids, there's a lot of different kinds, and some of them have become heirloom bulbs in California. They grow very, very well here. Those of you listening, colder climates than, say, USDA Zone 9, they will not grow for you. These are more subtropical species Mm. or Mediterranean species, whereas other daffodils, as you undoubtedly know, grow quite well in Mm -hmm. colder climates. My mother attended Wellesley College, wherever that is, back there somewhere. And uh, yes. <laughs> some of, one of the traditions of each new uh, entry, uh, each new woman who entered Wellesley, it was all women college, was they each planted a daffodil bulb. And they had been doing this 
for decades and decades mm-hmm. and decades. So there are thousands, apparently, of daffodil bulbs planted at Wellesley. They were planting the classic King Alfred trumpet, daffodil, hence they called them daffodils. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of species, Narcissus, that are really cool, really interesting, little miniature ones, all kinds of them. They vary in the, this is the key thing, they vary in their fragrance. Mm-hmm. Trumpet daffodils have a mild, sweet, musky, odd smell, but it's not unpleasant. Paper whites, you either love them or hate them. They're, I hate, they're, I, I, they're, yeah, they're, they're I, too strong for me. I'm sorry. They're great out in the garden. You know, if you've got some weird odor problem in your house, just bring one in, stick it in a room. That'll take. Then care you'll of have it. a different odor <laughs> problem. Take care of yep. the problem. Not everyone likes them. There are some lower scented or less scented paper whites out there that are sold actually for that purpose. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have the real pretty white flowers, and you can force them. They're the ones that people will put in. We have some in coffee mugs right now that we're selling. You just take a bulb, stick it, and grab. Add some water up to the base of the bulb. It'll bloom right in that, no matter what you do. So you can oh. you can get them to bloom indoors without any effort whatsoever. And uh, you can do them I in a bet vase. That's popular with the students. Yeah, oh, it's great, and it gives you yeah. some color, and it's very fragrant. And then when it's done, you can here you can just stick them out in the garden, and they'll mm-hmm. multiply quite freely. To put it mildly, yeah. I still have some I planted in the 1980s that a customer gave me that she had had since the 1940s. So these bulbs are now going into, you know, eight, nine decades in various parts of Davis-Dixon area. Okay. So, but question on that one for eight or nine decades. It isn't the same bulb, is it? Aren't they they dividing? They're dividing and and dividing and dividing. Yeah. Who knows? And so the original may not last 80 years. The original bulb itself, but they are all clones of the same plant. They're they're divisions, not seedlings, although seedlings can occur as well, but they're divisions. So basically Mm -hmm. what you have is the same cultivar all those years. She gave me a, a botanical illustrator that I had worked with in the botany department, walked in after we'd been open for just you know less than a year, so early 1980s, 81, 82, with a sack load of bulbs, and she had dug them out of her yard. And they were a mix of the old-fashioned freesias, I love the those. antique, super fragrant, mm-hmm. ivory-white freesias, which all froze out in 1990, unfortunately, and then these interesting old-fashioned paper whites, and I still have them out there. It is very interesting to compare them to modern paper whites and how they've changed over the years of selection and breeding for cleaner, brighter white, more discreet flowers, less twisty petals. You know, I think they actually look very cool side by side because you can see what's been done mm-hmm. to make it to, I'll use the term improve it, but to change it uh, for more What modern, choices have been made for, yeah, for, yeah. yeah. And one of, the, okay. one of those choices is less fragrant. Uh-huh. So, so uh, when you say the daffodils with the long trumpet, now yep. I, I'm, I recognize those. There's yep. this tubular thing in the middle, yep. open on the end, and then there's some, some petals around it. Yes. Daffodil shape. Okay. Yep. So... What are the little ones? Are they the same shape, just smaller? There are. are there, there... Yes, there are some miniature trumpets. One of the very best in this area is February Gold. I planted a dozen, half dozen to a dozen bulbs 30 years ago, and now in that same spot where I planted them, I get 50 or 60 blooms every year. Mm-hmm. They've increased quite a bit. They look like you took that King Alfred daffodil, gave and it a slightly just... longer trumpet, and shortened it shortened, up to about yeah. 10 inches. Great garden plants. So really, really fine for smaller gardens, and they multiply quite freely here. So but daffodil... others look different, don't they? Yeah, there's a lot of different kinds. There's some that are, are large cups, small cups, some that don't have trumpets and so forth. There's white ones. There's there's pink was a big breakthrough you know, 50 years ago. Uh, there's bicolors. It's amazing how many are out there, how many different kinds. And daffodils are gopher-proof because they don't eat them. Nothing eats daffodils. Uh, they're <laughs> absolutely pest-free. Squirrels don't eat them. Oh, and, yeah, i got to no, plant some of those. Yeah, they don't. They don't they're apparently toxic. They're I going guess. after my cyclamen. They'll, <laughs> they'll go after any bulb that's even remotely edible, and apparently mm-hmm. daffodils are not. And, uh, and so 
they're very easy to grow. In fact, I remember one person who told me he was out in the country. He just stuck daffodil bulbs in every gopher mound. Mm. That was the simple way to decide where to plant them, and he knew they wouldn't come back and eat them. So there you go, one way of managing right. gophers. Um, what are those little uh, hangy-down bell-shaped things that are white with a little tiny spot of green around the You're edges? You're talking about snowflakes. Uh, or snowdrops. Snowdrops are different. Okay. We, and those of you listening in much colder places grow snowdrops. That's I what I remembered back in Michigan. Galanthus, I think. And uh, snowflakes are leucogem and bigger, but very similar. If I guess a nodding flower, white bloom, little green spot on each petal. Mm-hmm. Very, and there's several flowers very, on what each yeah, stalk. cluster of flowers. Yeah. Very easy to grow here. One of those plants that naturalizes is a term we use for things that multiply where you want that to happen. Are um, they shade or sun? Yes. Oh, good. Yes. And do they bloom now or later? They bloom very early in the late winter, early spring. So, so they're one of, the, one of the first to bloom, February, March, yeah, depending on the weather. Oh, but, cool. Yeah. So would now be a good time to plant? Are these yes. bulbs? Yeah, these are bulbs that you plant now. Here, uh, you can plant any of these through January. Uh, usually we do November, December, but into January is fine. And you can plant them right in the mud. I've done this many, many times with bulbs. When we have leftovers at my shop, I take them home rather than throw them out. Mm-hmm. I go out even into sloppy mud. I'll take a trowel, pull a glob of mud away, drop the bulb down, let the mud fall back in around it, they're fine. Good. No special, you don't Good. need to feed them. And you them. don't have to worry about making no. a making a bathtub. No, and this is the other thing. You read all these rules for planting mm-hmm. bulbs, and I think bulb sales at retail nurseries dropped steadily from the 1990s on about 5 to 10% a year, year after year after year, until many nurseries gave up on them. Part of it was, as with roses, as with so many other flowers, we gave you all this rigmarole you had to do that it sounded mm-hmm. complicated and that they're one of the easiest things in the world to plant. Mm-hmm. If you don't happen to put them in the ground, stick them in pots. They'll do fine in containers. Mm-hmm. Bulbs are, are basically a drought adaptation. And so they come up in the rainy season for us. They grow, they bloom at the mid to late part of the rainy season, and then they go back to dormancy. And that goes for most of them, honestly. Dormant for the summer. Dormant for the summer. Mm-hmm. So they fit beautifully in low water landscapes. Mm-hmm. I think with this trend towards no lawns, but using ground covers and, and uh, low spreading plants, bulbs popping up here and there are a great addition to that kind of landscape. They're naturally very drought tolerant because of their growth cycle. And many of them are, most of them like full sun, uh, but light shade is okay for some, like the snowflake you mentioned, like uh, narcissus are okay in the shade. I have grape hyacinths and wood hyacinths growing in the shade. Up in the Pacific Northwest, I gather the wood hyacinth and the Spanish uh, squill have just become like invasive. Uh, mm. I can think of worse problems, but yes, yeah, some of these bulbs squill? can actually. Squill? What's a squill? It's a, it's a wood hyacinth. It's a blue flowered um, mm. bulb. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Both of those, my children used to do this thing. If I left bulbs lying around or seed packets lying around, they thought it was really fun to take them out and plant them, sneak out and plant them someplace where I wouldn't know. <laughs> and, uh, and then you'd suddenly yeah, have these I'd, things pop up. I'd see a whole like 30 seedling sunflowers popping up in the middle of a garden bed. Or in the case of the bulbs, my daughter did one snowflake, leucogem, under a Japanese maple. She was probably seven or eight years old, and she's in her 30s now. And that there is in that spot 30 of them, easily mm. multiplied quite freely. Same thing with wood hyacinths. One of those kids planted it in the, in the shade now. It was in the sun then. Same thing. It's multiplied very freely. So they kind of a, rem- a remembrance of when they were children each year mm-hmm. when they come up and bloom. Mm-hmm. No care on my part, except they're getting watered because of the things that are nearby. Bulbs are really easy to grow. Okay. Um, so next time, can we do a list of bulbs? Sure. For the next show? Sure. I think that would be wonderful. Okay. Yep. 
All right, so we answered that question. Short question, long answer. Yeah, that's the way it works. You know, here. that's the yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is. You think you've got a simple question? <laughs> okay, this person has a home greenhouse. Yes. And the issues right now are spider mites and white flies. Yeah, those are both major greenhouse pests. Having worked in greenhouse management, I can tell you those two add mealybugs, and you've got the three biggest pests of greenhouses that are the most difficult to deal with. When I was working in greenhouses, the things we used were things you don't want to use. Mm-hmm. Um, you do want to knock them down now because otherwise your greenhouse becomes a really easy way to carry them over to next year. Mm. And uh, so if you have you know things like your Brugmansia in your greenhouse, I guarantee it's got white flies on it. If you're okay with insecticides, then imidacloprid is a classic greenhouse insecticide for that purpose. Bear in mind that in this case, at least, they'd be isolated from pollinators. So the main issue with imidacloprid would not be a big factor, but many people don't want to use that. Sprays in a greenhouse are challenging because Mm -hmm. they aren't necessarily labeled for that. And one of the issues with a lot of greenhouse materials is that at high temperatures, the spray material will burn the foliage, particularly if it spikes up high suddenly, and that's what it does in greenhouses. Mm -hmm. Uh, We had to use things when I was working in greenhouses and and, uh, back in the days when predominantly chemical approaches were used, we had to use things very carefully and we had to test them first because you didn't have things typically labeled for that. And the air is not going away. It's circulating. So you're breathing it. So if you're using something like neem, you'll find the odor unpleasant, although the material is not very toxic. It's actually very low toxicity, but you may find the smell an issue. And it's an oil. An oil in a high temperature situation can burn the foliage. Managing spider mice and white flies in the greenhouse is very similar to out in the yard. Rinse them off vigorously if that's practical for you. You might have to move the plant outside in order to do this. And as you do it, the adults will be fluttering away. So outside might be better if that's an option and it's not freezing and you can you know do it at this time of year. Because you will be able to blast off the adults, kill a lot of them that way, knock off a lot of the eggs and some of the larvae, but not all of them. So you'll have to do this every couple of days for perhaps a couple of weeks to really get good control. Spider mice like a dusty leaf surface. They have a very, very rapid population turnover in a greenhouse. And so, and generally predaceous mites, which do a very good job of controlling them out of doors, won't build up as fast as the spider mites will in a greenhouse. Because there's no place for them to get in. Yeah, and even if they do get in there, they don't. their reproductive rate isn't as fast and they have fewer places to harbor. So greenhouses are managed by biological controls, by release of biological controls. I know someone back east who's a major grower who controls white flies and aphids and mites by controlled timed release of natural predators. He mm. does that by monitoring sampling, classic integrated pest management, and decides a point at which he's going to spend the money, it's not cheap, to buy in some biological controls. You can release predaceous mites. You can release things that will eat white flies. And that works. And if you have a permanent greenhouse with a lot of interesting things in it, a lot of places they could harbor, like over in the corner where those plants are that you never cut back or whatever, um, you might be able to get a good enough standing population of natural predators just by a couple of timed releases of these predaceous mites and other predators. You need to read up about it, and I'd be happy to answer questions by email, uh, but it can be done. Otherwise, you manage them individually on plants by vigorous rinsing, typically, or the possible strategic use of pesticides. So if I want to have these um, predatory mites and other beneficial insects to Mm -hmm. eat the the, the critters, um, 
if the the greenhouse is large enough that I can put in some habitat plants, mm-hmm. yeah. what would I choose? That's going to vary. Want, do you like pampas grass kind of things, you or do you want you ficus choo- kind you of things? You wouldn't have to choose that carefully. You just have an area where you're not going to be cleaning it all out every so often. So uh-huh. for commercial crops, you know, the poinsettias come, they're gone, then it's mums or whatever. They have a whole turnover of things. They never have a place. And so then they uh, clean it all they out. They clean it all out, so they can't really keep a harbor a, a, a population. Many do maintain a small area for just exactly what you're describing. And they do a little research to see where those might hang out. And you'd have to do a little research for your particular... You have to tolerate a little bit of the pest to accept right. the predators. But if you do that, it, it actually can work. Or you can just continue with timed releases. And as I say, sometimes augmenting that with some very careful application of either pesticides or vigorous rinsing of the plants. And if you don't do anything, though, I guarantee white flies and spider mites have a population turnover in a warm greenhouse that will really startle you. So where would someone who's interested in this um, this habitat harv- uh, harboring, mm-hmm. uh, where would they read up? Would that be in the IPM website? Or? You might find information there. Companies like Orcon who sell the beneficial insects would probably have some information. Anyone okay. listening who has uh, something they want to send us, send it along, davisgardenshow at gmail.com. And if you have a question, you can send that there too. Yep. And if you really like us, you can tell us how wonderful we are. And we like <laughs> those you like. messages. I like those messages. Okay, and this writer said, we turned off our sprinkler finally. Yeah. When should we turn them back on again? And she said, when it stops raining? And I said, well, sort of. I mean, the, there's a sequence. It, first of all, don't forget to water the plants in containers that are under overhangs. If they need water, they may. Uh, don't forget to water things in containers out from under overhangs if we don't get rain for, you know, two, three, four weeks. That happens. So keep an eye on those things. But more to the point, we're talking about when do you start watering your lawn, your garden beds, your shrubs and trees? That's kind of the sequence in which you start watering. Usually, it, I mean, it depends on the weather. I know that's a cop-out, but it does. Uh, once we have uh, gotten to the point where the evapotranspiration rate is at least a couple inches a month and we haven't had a couple inches of rain, that's usually around April here in Northern mm-hmm. California in the Sacramento Valley. Wherever you're listening, it may be different. It can be very warm in Southern California, and you can be periods, of course, where you only get 10 inches of rain total in the year, where that might be happening as early as February, March. So going by the soil moisture is going to be more important than just trying to decide by the calendar. If you have a smart meter, smart timer, that will help because if it's got uh, soil sensors, it'll give you some feedback on that. I can't imagine you need to turn them on before March. At least not up here, anyway. Um, and then the at least thing, not this year. And, and that's right. I mean, last year we had rain. We had three inches of rain in May, mm-hmm. and then it got really hot in early June. And so people turned on their sprinklers earlier than they needed to. It got really wet. They kept those sprinklers going, and we saw more crown rot this year than I've seen typically mm-hmm. in a normal normal season here. So. And there was a year where we had very, very, very little rain yep. during the winter, and so people who had shut off their sprinklers were then. They were droughting their plants in the middle of the winter. Well, yeah, during the drought, there were some walnut growers in the Solano County, Yellow County area were irrigating during the drought, which perplexed people. But it is well, it is understood from research that drought-stressed walnuts in the winter don't yield as well that summer. So they were actually giving them a couple inches of water in January, which is unheard of, but that was quite a drought. Now we've heard of it. We've heard of it. That's right. So I've got four tomato questions. I'm going to ask them all, and then you can answer them all at once. Uh, what were your best tomatoes this year? 
Was it a weird year for tomatoes? <laughs> some people got lots of tomatoes and some didn't get much. Was that different varieties or the weather or what? My best tomatoes this year. Well, um, the usual ones, but I will mention a couple that were a little unusual. Whopper. Parks Whopper. Been around forever. Whopper? W-H-O-P-P-B-A. Whopper, just like it sounds. The big fruited red tomato. Been on the market for four decades. Now they have a... I think it's Whopper 2 because it's got better disease. It's not a super Whopper? Disease-resistant built in. It's pretty super. It was my best producing hybrid this year. I planted some years and not others. There's about a dozen hybrid tomatoes that are fairly similar. Uh, Better Boy, Champion, some people like Celebrity, Whopper. These are basically large red tomatoes. Mm -hmm. And I plant at least half of those every year, and I happen to do Whopper. Whopper outproduced all the others this year. I got a late start. We'll get into that in a moment. My best wild boar farms tomato of the group that are, were locally developed by Brad Gates of Wild Boar Farms surprised me. It was called Spot Yellow. And I've overlooked this one for years. I've grown it and thought, okay, interesting, but nothing really to write home about. This year, it was by far my best producer of his tomatoes. His name, the name refers to the fact that the fruit have little quirky corky, like like little woody spots on the skin. So your average tomato breeder would definitely not have saved this one. But he did, and he because he looks for things like that. It was he touched the flavor. It's incredibly sweet, and it mm. was my top top producing of the wild boar farms tomatoes this year. And everybody raved about it. I was bringing them in; and they were very sweet, and everybody loved them. So it's an odd appearance because of the little spots on the skin, which are natural. They're just a thing that's and, on there. And when you when you peel a tomato, the spots are they're on, the skin. They're on the skin. They're not in the flesh. Not in the flesh. And doesn't they don't? Yeah, they don't go any further in. And the flavor is great, and it was a very good yielder. So if you've been looking at the Wild Boar Farms tomatoes and you're, next year you're thinking of one, you know, try a different one, look for Spot Yellow. I mentioned this also. A lot of the retailers wouldn't be one of the ones they would necessarily consider getting. Mm-hmm. So if I also want to mention it now because it's seed catalog season <laughs> and the seed catalogs are piling up. If you're looking at some of his, consider that one. Uh, so those are two that particularly did well for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it was a weird year. It was a weird year because it was very cool and rainy in May. And mm-hmm. so people who planted tomatoes in April, they got off to a good start, and then they stalled, and then they flowered while it was cold and rainy, and they had a lot of blossom and rot, as apparently as a consequence of that. Most of us who couldn't get in to do anything until the rainy stuff stopped um, couldn't, couldn't get planted until almost Memorial Day weekend here, mm. which put us like on the same calendar as the rest of the country. And then it got hot. So people who planted late and then expected fruit early were disappointed. Those of us who, as usual, waited until September, October. You mean who planted early? No, well, both. Uh, They got a lot of blossom end rod. But people who planted late because they couldn't get in and Uh. then were hoping for fruit in July, well, you know, it doesn't work that way. So it was a late year. And if they weren't watering correctly, the plant just kind of fizzled out. Those are the ones who did not do well with them. Mm -hmm. As usual, my biggest yielding month was, well, late September and the month of October. Mm -hmm. So they got a very good set July, August. So, Okay. So um, let's talk about trees. Is this a good time to feed trees and and get, do, do do nitrogen, or is this too late? It or? really won't do much. Uh, I mean, there's there's nothing wrong with putting organic fertilizers on pretty much any time. They'll just work their way into the soil with the rains. Be there. They'll break down at the pace that is dictated by the soil temperature and moisture. And the soil temperature is getting colder, so they'll break down very slowly. And the nitrogen won't really be available to the tree until hey, probably late winter when its roots will start growing. 
growing and it'll be ready to bud out. So, so organic so fertilizers. The, the, the soil temperature and the, the stuff that's going to make the tree grow yeah. is also going to make the fertilizer. organic fertilizer available. Yes. Whereas conventional fertilizers, by which I mean sulfate of ammonia, urea, uh, things, things that are more traditional, not organic fertilizers, mm-hmm. Probably wasting your time because most of them, if you put them on, you get a couple of inches of rain, they'll just Washed away. be past the root zone. So why bother? It's not, And the roots aren't taking them up now. Not much, no. Yeah. I mean, there's not, uh, there's not much point in feeding right now. We do have people feeding their citrus because they look kind of yellowish. And there may be other reasons they're looking yellowish. It doesn't hurt to feed them now if you want to. It's just not Seems a time. Seems like a waste of money unless you're I'd using doing, organic. Yeah, not a time I'd be doing a lot of fertilizing. So. Okay. So we're, here he has listed two subjects that seem to evoke the most confusion among the buying public for those of us in garden centers. These are, one, the seasonality of products, such as bare root, um, and two, soil science. Let's yeah. do the, just, we'll, we'll do the other one later. The, the, the definition of terms, deciduous. Yes, Bare root. Yes. I, I mentioned this. We've talked a lot about soil science and fertilizer in previous shows. That would be a great topic for the beginning of the spring when people do a lot of want to go out and feed their yards. But no, uh, deciduous means? It means that the life cycle of each individual leaf is less than one year. And so there is some time during the year when the tree doesn't have leaves on it. And it's a natural cycle. It's mm-hmm. a natural, they, for the one the best known, of course, are deciduous trees in cold climates, which, because of shortening days and lower temperatures, go through a specific process of forming an abscission layer. Sometimes they get fall color. The leaves all fall off of the tree at once. That's, there's other forms of deciduous. There's tropical trees that drop in response to drought, and they mm-hmm. do it very similar. But it's a natural cycle of dropping leaves from wherever they're from. And the most common one that you will see in our area is the native oak tree. The valley oak Mm -hmm. gets bare in the winter. Yep. And then there are evergreens, which are plants that, uh, as Wikipedia says, foliage is shed on a different schedule from deciduous trees, which is a really good way of putting it. (laughs) What (laughs) it means is each leaf has a life cycle that is more than one year. And so there's never any time during the year where there are no leaves. The leaves do fall. Leaves do fall. I remember sitting on Russell Boulevard, downtown Davis, waiting for the light to change. And And we were being showered by corkoak leaves (laughs) because the light breeze had come up in the month of March. And people who live under cork oaks, which we are, which are a live oak, or the term we use for evergreen oaks, drop leaves heavily in the spring, mm-hmm. lightly the rest of the time. But there's never a time when they're completely out of leaf. The new leaves come on before the old leaves drop off. Yeah. So um, we have a whole category of plants that are semi-deciduous or semi-evergreen. And those, of course, are kind of weasel words, but they mean uh, there are some trees, some shrubs and trees that get the trigger to drop leaves because of, for example, drought. We have California natives that will do this, but they may not drop all their leaves. It just really depends on the severity of the drought. For example, your training as a docent was in the genus. Oh, ribes. Yeah, which if you grow the native ribes, they're deciduous. They may be deciduous in the summer if the, you don't yes, water them. Yeah. Yes, especially the foothill ones. Yeah. They also are yeah. deciduous properly in the winter in the case of most of the it's members of the, of the genus. Yeah. And there's actually an evergreen ribes as well. My favorite uh, plant. Uh, we have uh, semi-evergreen is probably the best term for the subtropical plants that we grow here in Northern California. And many of you listening in USDA zones, USDA zones 8 or 9 where you're growing things that are really zone 10 plants. And they're evergreen except that we get cold enough. To damage them. That's mm-hmm. not a natural cycle for the right. plant. It's growing where it wouldn't actually 
happen to them. So I just it, call them hardy subtropicals. These and, are, and it doesn't mean they have an abscission layer nope. or do the fall color and all that other stuff. It just means that they got whacked with the, the hunk of cold, and now you got brown leaves hanging on until new leaves come out. It would be kind of handy if they did have an abscission layer they because they, the leaves hang on there and look rough. And yeah. So if you're looking out the window of the studio here, you'll see lantana. That's a classic example of a hardy subtropical. It's a subtropical plant that wouldn't naturally grow in Northern California, mm -hmm. but we plant it. Brugmansia, uh, lots of other examples. Abutilon. Abutilon is somewhere in there, and it's a big group, so they mm -hmm. vary. And this is the thing about a lot of these. The lantana is a good example. Some of them almost always defoliate, depending on how cold we get. Others basically don't. The purple ones almost always make it not even just leaves, but almost even blooming through the and winter. And it depends on where it is in right. your microclimate, right. too, right. So because this one right here facing, you know, getting the sun from the south and the shaded from the north and... It usually has leaves on it. It usually has blooms in January. Flowers on it. <laughs> Except <laughs> the very, the right very outer part of the plant sometimes freezes off. So we, are, we would call those hardy subtropicals as opposed to subtropical or tropical plants that we simply can't grow here. Hibiscus, Rosa sinensis, the tri Chinese or tropical hibiscus, is an evergreen where it grows. Here it freezes back and it usually doesn't recover. And, and then there are some shrubs, Abelia, Nandina, which will grow in colder climates, but drop a lot of leaves in the winter. And they don't do that here. So those would be semi-evergreen. The reason this matters is because we are in December, which is the beginning of the bare root season. Bare root is a way of growing plants to sell them, mostly fruit trees, but also flowering plants like Any lilacs. deciduous plant. They're only deciduous Only plants. deciduous Only plant. deciduous plants. That's the important part. So okay. people come in every year looking for peaches, nectarines, plums, and oranges. Well, peaches, nectarines, and plums go, are deciduous. Yes. Oranges are an evergreen, and you wouldn't plant them now. They're hardy subtropical. They're hardy enough to grow here, but they're mm -hmm. a little vulnerable, especially when they're young. So we get the question a lot, you know, do you have citrus? And it'll be January because we have all these bins and bins of the deciduous yeah. things. Many nurseries just give up and bring in citrus anyway. I've done it. And just say, yeah, we got them. They're over here. Don't plant it yet. Keep it on your porch. You know, put it in a sheltered little microclimate. But yes, we have them because you're asking for them. Others, I tried for years to say, why don't you come back in March when it's a better time? And you know, I'll order one for yeah, you. What, yeah. what kind would you like? And I'll call you when it comes in. We would do that. We certainly yeah. do that too. But uh, since they want them, a lot of places have them. Citrus are the, the, the one that leads to the great is confusion. It's a That's fruit tree. It's a, tree. it's a fruit tree. Yeah. The others are bare root. The other things that come in bare root, and they're in nurseries now. We've got the you know, people have the berries and the rhubarb and some asparagus. deciduous yeah. vegetables like asparagus. Yeah, um, horseradish. I brought in horseradish this year. Easy to grow. Let me tell you. Uh, so the cane berries in particular, blueberries, which are an interesting group. They're sold as deciduous, but I would call them. Semi-deciduous to semi-evergreen, and it varies by variety. Mm -hmm. They arrived from our grower up in Oregon in full leaf with beautiful fall color on them, and a couple of them are actually flowering. Mm -hmm. And we get them also from a coastal grower where they come in in midwinter in full bloom. Mm -hmm. So that would classify as probably a semi-evergreen because it never really goes fully dormant here. And this is a usage term, not an absolute term. If you're listening to us in Long Island, what we're calling semi-evergreen might well be deciduous in your area. And the native blueberries and huckleberries up where I grew up back in Michigan, up you in Canada. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, but they were definitely deciduous yeah, yeah. because we got three feet of snow. <laughs> now, you may well bring that same variety down into the southern states, although we mostly grow other types of yeah. uh, blueberries. But I would guess they would be semi-evergreen or semi-deciduous here. The other thing that matters about this is it's only 
typically deciduous fruit species where we care about the chilling hours. Mm -hmm. We've talked about chilling hours and chilling portions before. Certain number of hours between about 32 about four, to about 45 degrees and not too many days above 60, um, you know, that will, will help a tree or shrub go into the proper dormancy, stay there for a while, a fixed period that's appropriate to that variety, and then come out at the right pace to flower if it's something like a lilac to just give you the bloom, if it's something like a fruit tree to give you the bloom and the fruit. If you don't get enough chilling hours, it it won't do that. It won't bloom correctly. Mm -hmm. And we refer to that a lot when we're talking about low chill peaches for Southern California growers or uh, you know, how many chilling hours we get here, which is 750 to 850 typically. You know, and th that's something you'll see on the label. That only refers to deciduous species, ones yeah, that naturally okay. drop their leaves. Let's move on to Holly's question. Okay. Oh, we've probably got to do an announcement this, first. And we're going to do soil science later. Yep. So we'll, you know, we do that. We did the announcements. We did. Okay. Yep. We got okay. all our announcements. We're done. Okay, we've done the, done the busy so, stuff. So, um, Holly sent a question. Well, that, you have oh, it? that one. Yep. Wait a minute. That's not it. Okay, it. which I, I don't think you gave it to there me. There you go. You can have it. You can read the question, then you'll have to hand ah, it back. There we to go. You. Holly okay. Morell. Hello, Holly. Uh, hi, Don and Lois. I recently discovered your show, and I think it's fantastic. I'm looking for tree recommendations. I was hoping you could help. I live in Redlands. That's zip code 92373. San Bernardino which, County. Which is in zone 10. Yep. Our temperatures hover around 100 degrees with regular spikes up to 105 or oh, 110 yeah. Yeah. for about three to four months out of the year. I'm looking for a small tree or large shrub to plant on the east side of my house. I'd prefer it to max out at about 15 feet tall and wide, but wouldn't be averse to doing some occasional pruning to keep it that small. In a perfect world, I'd love to find one that doesn't require summer water once established, but that might be a tall order. So I'm okay with giving it a good soak once a month or so. Plus, it will probably get small amounts of regular water from my neighbor's sprinklers. <laughs> I'm also looking for a tree that doesn't uh, drop a lot of litter year-round since it will be hanging over a patio. Finally, I'd love it if the tree or shrub were native to somewhere in California, mm -hmm. but that's less important than the other considerations I've listed. Any good, thoughts? That's a great list of criteria there. And I it should mention, well thought. I mean, yes. I grew up in, I know where you are, and yes, it's hot there in the summer. Uh, it's hot here, it's hotter there. And you don't have the benefit of the Delta breeze. So looking, for example, if you folks want to check out a place like where she's coming from, Redlands. Weatherspark.com tells us that their average high in July, average high is 95 to 96 degrees. Ours is close to that. But our average nighttime temperature is in the 50s, and theirs is in the 60s because they're mm -hmm. further inland, interior, southern California. Lots of things you can grow. And there's a couple that I'm not as up on because I moved away from there a long time ago, like some of the cassias that have really pretty blooms, gold coin tree, things like that. There may be new varieties of those that I'm not familiar with. So you should check, so you your, check your local nursery. Yeah, yeah, on those. And some of the acacias, you know, I'm not big on them up here, but I know there's a lot of varieties. There might be some. But let's go through a couple well, of possibilities. Yes. Before we get there, do, do they have down in that area something like the Arboretum? I mean, if, sure. you, if you move to Davis and you want to know what will grow, you can just walk around the Arboretum and see what's growing. Somewhere nearby, I'm sure there's a good Arboretum or Public Garden. And that's okay. always a good starting point yeah. for a lot of these things. So I'll go with some natives first, although there's not as many choices. And these are not native necessarily where you are, but they're California natives. Uh, the first one that came up on my list was California Buckeye. I mention it 
But what? a couple things about California no, buckeye. No, 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 it's no. native. Mm-hmm. It is. It's a small tree. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a lot of them here in the coast range. They're very easy to pick out in July because that's when they drop their leaves. Mm-hmm. Up here, anyway. They, they, in the absence of summer rainfall, they go deciduous midsummer, and uh, so they're now with water. I'm told, like ribes, they'll stay foliated longer and later. Need but to be aware. They poison though. bees. They poison Tom. everything. They're poison. Yes, they're well. They poison European honeybees. They don't poison the native bees. Yeah, so well, still. I've, I have found that is a, an unselling point for the California buckeye. I thought yes. I'd start with that one and move on. Manzanitas, there are a couple mm, that yeah. get big enough. I planted in a new dry bed area on my property, St. Helena, which is a cultivar or variety of the Arctostaphylus, which is the genus, Manzanita, which is the species. Dr. Hurd is one you're likely to find locally. They grow very slowly, three, four, five, six inches a year. But eventually these two get 8, 10, 12 feet Mm -hmm. and have a classic upright form. So they look like a tree even when they're fairly young. And they have that beautiful mahogany bark and the flowers in the winter and hummingbirds love them and so on. Uh, Is there such a thing as a cross between uh, one of those and the... um Madrone. Madrone tree? No, but we'll get to that group in a moment. Oh, okay. Um, because that's, yeah, next on my list. Madrone relatives. Now, if yeah. you live they're, where... They're the same genus. The same family. Same a family. different genus. Our okay. bu- Madrone is Arbutus right. and Manzanita is Arctostaphylus. Yes, if you look at the flower, classic urn-shaped flower that says these Pendant, are close. Pendant. Yeah, little tiny yeah. hole in the bottom. Hummingbirds love them. Yeah. Uh, and that beautiful bark. Now, the old joke is that Madrone only grows where Madrone grows. That is to say, trying to grow it outside of its native soil, native range, just doesn't work. It's very, very, very vulnerable to crown rot and other problems. But it has some cousins that are not natives that are widely planted. One Mm -hmm. of them, Arbutus marina, has just taken the nursery industry by storm. And you're seeing it every nursery you go into is going to have that tree probably all over California. Bear in mind, the parent plant of it from the marina district of San Francisco was, I believe, about 30 to 40 feet tall Mm. and about equal spread. And so while it's a modest grower, two to three feet a year, Mm -hmm. it gets some size, reasonable pace, and you can keep it pruned, but it definitely would require pruning. Mm -hmm. What we like about it, one, it blooms all the time. Those little pinkish urn-shaped flowers, the hummingbirds love them. It sets fruit like the other arbutus do, but there aren't very many of them. It's a nice little crop, and the bigger birds will come along. I don't know what eats those, jays or something, cedar wax. Oh, no, littler birds. Yeah, yeah, I mean, the fruit is is, uh, as big as almost as big as what we call the strawberry tree. Mm-hmm. Within that one, Arbutus unido, which is actually a a Irish and European native. Um, I wouldn't plant Arbutus unido unless you had a large rural property because mm-hmm. the amount of fruit litter is astonishing. But I would plant and have planted the dwarf variants of it, such as Oktoberfest, which gets a darker pink flower, gets 10 feet over 10 or 20 years. Hmm. Nat- naturally grown like a tree, but can easily be trained up like a tree. So it looks like a madrone. It looks like a miniature Arbutus unido. The fruit crop is pretty heavy, but it's on a smaller, more manageable plant. So we have what I thought was a strawberry tree mm-hmm. in uh, in the on the north side, right next to the house. Mm-hmm. It's totally shaded by redwoods. You can take a lot of shade. And yeah. it, I don't ever remember noticing flowers on it. I mean, every once in a while I'll see a seed, so it must have had a flower. Probably the, but the shade. Is the yeah. shade would would be a factor? Although mine mine gets a fair bit of shade, but not that much. And uh-huh. and you know, I put one. My son just loves this plant, and the, the fruit is edible, folks. I mean, that's stretching it, but it's edible. He thinks it's edible. He pops them in and eats them. I could find them rather bland, and the texture is not that exciting. But if your kid eats one, it's 
that's it's fine. And my kid likes them. So when we built a shop that's his shop, he wanted one right near the door, and I planted the compacta there so we could train it as a as a dwarf tree, very mm-hmm. me- amenable to that kind of pruning. If you happen to be near the building that we're broadcasting from, there's one in the driveway up against the building that's been there for 20 years, and the maintenance gardeners clip it like a privet. You'd think and it's, it's it's right. It's right it's there. faces the. I mean, this guy says south sun, west, west sun, blazing. hot blazing yeah, sun. Yeah. So that's a possibility. Red buds, of course, you can consider. These are now deciduous options. Bear in mind, our western native red bud is really never tree-like. It's more like mm-hmm. a very large shrub. You could probably do a little strategic pruning. But the Oklahoma variety, which is a heat-tolerant version of an eastern red bud, that is reasonably drought-tolerant and has a thicker leaf that takes the heat better. And, and you can um, still make it a multi-trunk tree, yeah. or you can or you can keep trimming out the excess and make it a single-trunk well, tree. That one, most commonly, our growers send it out as a tree-shaped tree. Mm-hmm. Now, that isn't naturally, isn't what, it, naturally no, what it that's does. what they do to it. Yeah. So, and then there's a Chinese red bud as well. I'm going to mention the California lilac, wild lilac, mountain lilac, better known as Ceanothus. Most of them are big, sprawly shrubs. Most of them are not going to be trees, but there is a tree form, Ray mm-hmm. Hartman. But it's big, probably bigger than your criteria. Well, there's Arbutus, too. Arbutus. Yeah, that's yeah. another one. Uh, these are big plants, and they, they do tend to be finicky about the watering. So, And in, I've had one in my yard with doing nothing, absolutely nothing to it for 20 years. That's the way to manage them. Yeah. Do nothing to it. That's and, the and they have this particular form, which comes from the, Catal- the Catalina Island, yeah. uh, is... It is not deciduous. It has leaves all year. No, these are all evergreen. Most yeah. of the other ones of the Ceanothus are um, come and go. Most of them, are, they're all evergreen except for some East Coast species. Ah. Uh, yeah. So. Okay. Uh, there is one you want to look for locally and ask locally, which is the Palo Verde. We don't sell it up here much yet, but it's all over L.A. And so I know you're not in L.A., but you're not far. <laughs> so ask locally. Circidium Desert Museum. Once this cultivar from the Desert Museum in... Arizona, New Mexico, not sure where. Uh, thornless variety came on the market. Mm. It, again, it took the nursery industry uh, by storm, to use that phrase again, because it's thornless and it blooms a lot and it's very drought tolerant. Is this a Cianothus? No, this is a Circidium. It's a, oh. um, a Palo Verde. Um, I'm not recommending it up here yet just because I don't know how it tolerates wet, cold conditions. I think it's cold hardy, but the combination of wet and cold may be problematic. Mm-hmm. I'm waiting for more I'm waiting for more people to plant it and see before mm-hmm. we can say, hey, this is great, but it's definitely growing a lot. It's being beta tested. In Southern California, it does great. Yep. Drier conditions. There's non-native plants, and you have one in your yard, xylosma, which is a shrub, makes a great tree. You can train it it up as a tree. It is wonderful. Tough, adaptable. But but it is tall. Yeah, manageable. Very. You can prune it anytime, any 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 place, any way you want. You can cut it down. I mean, you could cut that thing down to three feet and it would grow back. It's just a marvelous tree. Standing in our nursery, we look straight back at a hedge that the city keeps pruned at about five feet. Just clip Mm -hmm. it. They clip it like a boxwood or a privet. Mm -hmm. And then in the the building we're broadcasting from, the same plant planted right along the parking lot was trained up to get it out of the way of the cars. So they're all like little trees. Mm -hmm. When they bloom, people don't really notice the flower much, but their bees love them. Mm -hmm. So if you want bees, it's a great thing to add to your garden. They're also a great habitat. Uh, bush for little tiny birds. Oh, yeah. yeah. The birds, it, it, the op- inside it's a little bit open so they can get through easily, uh, but the outside is, is totally covered in leaves, Dense. and so it's very safe. Now, buy carefully. If yes. you want nice bird habitat and you want thorniness, then buy compacta. 
it's got thorns. If mm. you don't want that, buy the regular congestum yeah. and look at the label carefully. I'm going to mention the feijoa, the pineapple guava, which goes really nicely with xylosma. Very similar size, gray leaf, fuzzy gray leaf. Fruit's a nice bonus if you happen to want the fruit. Except the squirrels eat if them. You, if you happen to want the fruit, look for ones that were grown for that purpose. There are named varieties out there. If you just buy it at a nursery and it's just labeled feijoa or new name is Aca siloiana, uh, you're just going to get a shrub and it might have fruit or it might not. In any event, the flowers are edible. And mm-hmm. yes, squirrels just love them. I keep getting that complaint. I'm going to mention oleanders for two reasons. One, they will work in their place in Northern California, mm-hmm. but you're in San Bernardino. Oleander leaf scorch is prevalent in several counties of California, including Santa Barbara, Ventura, San Diego, San Bernardino, and Los Angeles counties. It was first introduced and noticed in the Palm Springs, Indio area, and Riverside County, and then in Tustin in Orange County in the early 1990s. This is a disease that has spread across oleanders all over southeastern California by mm-hmm. the glassy wing sharpshooter. We have a quarantine program in place in the state of California to keep that glassy wing sharpshooter south of the Tehachapis, and it's been very successful. So That's our oleanders been going up, on for years. Yeah, because it threatens that that plant that. Particular insect also threatens grapevines. So mm-hmm. the wine industry made absolutely sure we set up a quarantine program to keep it down where it belonged. It was really, really wrought havoc on the wine industry in Southern California, where there are a lot of good wineries. Temecula area has you know 25 percent replacement of vines is standard in vineyards down there. Uh, so where you are, they probably ain't selling oleanders anymore. And anywhere in Southern California, you're probably not seeing them planted. And I know a are lot they- of people despise oleanders, but there's nothing as tough as a, it's poisonous there's a lot of issues but nothing as tough as an oleander but not, are, not for are San they, Bernardino uh, working on a research to find oleanders that no. uh, resist it no no they've just moved on what um, did they move on to on the free this is our your freeway it tree. certainly is yeah this is the bush <laughs> yeah. that goes down I-5 from up there until it peters out well, that's a good question. They're, they're still planting them in the valley, but galls hit them on the coast and the, this particular dieback in Southern California. Mm. So, uh, There are a few small flowering trees you could look at if you don't mind more water. The flowering cherries, flowering plums, crab apples would all work, but those are all going to be higher water trees. And I'm going to also mention in particular, with the time we have left, the smoke tree of which there are several cultivars now. I have purple smoke tree, Cotinus cogigria. Cotinus you can have to look that one up. Just remember smoke tree because it's the only thing called a smoke tree. Most common in the trade forever and ever was a purple-leafed one that started selling more and more during the drought as an alternative to that absolutely ubiquitous red leaf plum that was planted all over Northern California. Mm-hmm. Developers loved red leaf plums. They're a high it's water high tree. Water, yeah. High water. Some of them fruited. They kind of fell out of favor. But every liked, everybody liked the burgundy foliage and the fact that you had a tree with purplish red leaves that would contrast nicely with other things. Cotinus is naturally a shrub like a crepe myrtle. It can be trained up with either multiple liters, which is what I've done with mine, or a single liter where the grower will do that for you, make it tree-like. I put one down by my mailbox on my rural property 10 years ago. I let it grow completely naturally, so it has 10 or 12 limbs, and it's about 12 feet tall and about 12 feet across. I water it once a month very Mm. deeply, and it gives these fascinating cloud-like blossoms and the seed pods that follow continue that appearance. So it looks like smoke. It looks like the the tree is wreathed in purple smoke in the case of the particular cultivar that's most common. There are some new forms. Those are royal purple is the most common that was in the trade forever. There's one called grace that's brighter pink. 
There's one called Encot. Uh, Golden Spirit is the name Monrovia Nursery has on it. This one I want to mention, but it's not as successful in hot interior climates. It starts out kind of a lime green, and it turns gold, which is really cool in the pictures. People who have planted them found they burn in hot sun areas. Mm. So that one's not as successful. And there's a new one that has the rather comical name Old Fashioned. <laughs> Old Fashioned. It's a patented form that came out about a decade ago. Let I me have... guess. It's the color of a drink of alcohol. No, <laughs> Good question. What color is an Old Fashioned? I don't remember. Um, sort of a... a... The large, it has very large leaves, significantly bigger than the others. They start out purple, then they turn kind of blue-green, kind of mm. the color of an almost olive-like color. Mm. And then they have this very pretty yellow-green flowers and particularly spectacular fall color on this one. So I think it's going to catch on as a an alternative or a contrasting smoke bush, smoke tree to the purple leaf type that's, that's dominated the trade for so long called old fashioned. If you call a nursery and say, do you have that old fashioned smoke tree? They may not know that name and they'll think you just mean the purple one because that's the, the, oldest, old, you know, oldest the, old, one. the oldest one that's been around. Yeah. So you got to say, no, this is a patented one. Suncrest Nurseries has it. A lot of nurseries have them. And it's actually going to be a really useful garden plant because of the fall color has really been catching people's eye right now We're here in northern California. Very fall color in December. Fall color in December. <laughs> yeah, my Japanese maples look lovely right now. I just took a bunch of pictures of them. And I will mention um, three others. Australian willow, which you can grow and we can't. It's not a willow. It's a lovely, graceful little tree. Some kinds of acacias, some kinds of hakeas. You'll just have to check those out locally. If you do a crepe myrtle, do either something like Zuni or Centennial Spirit, one that only gets to 10 to 12 feet. Don't plant a big one and encourage someone to prune it because then they get mutilated. Plant one that naturally is small. Zuni is purple. Centennial Spirit is, is red-pink. They only get about 10 feet, so they'd fit your criteria. And then look at, for novelty, maybe something like a weeping mulberry. Hmm. Weeping form of mulberry. Very interesting focal point. You can have fruiting or fruitless types. You didn't mention Grevillea. Is that Who? not Grevillea? Uh, there, aren't any, there aren't any tree form of Grevillea that stays small enough. So okay. there, there's a tree form that's huge. It's all over Southern California. Yeah. It's a fascinating plant, but kind of messy. There's a lot of shrubby Grevilleas that are great for mm -hmm. hummingbird flowers in the winter and all that kind of thing. And if you don't have to have a tree, there's all these bushes too. And lots of shrubs can be trained as trees. I mean, they call it a standard in the business. Mm -hmm. They just take a regular shrub, train it as a tree. Thanks for the question. If you've got any follow-up questions or any of you out there would like a similar landscape consultation, you can send those to <laughs> davisgardenshow at gmail.com. You've been listening to The Davis Garden Show with Don Shore. And Lois Richter here in Davis at KDRT 95.7 FM.